If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's good to sing to our God and good to be reminded from one another as we hear one another uh, sing the truths of the good news that we have in Jesus as those who have been rescued and redeemed. Um, A few guys got together last night and uh, watched uh, some of the UFC fights. I'm sorry if you don't like fighting. My mom doesn't either. And so, uh, but we did, we, we watched them. And uh, one of the coolest things happened is one of these fighters, when they got done fighting, uh, said, let me, let me talk to my people in Iran for a moment. And he said, uh, I know you're struggling and you're, you're wanting to be free. He said, but we're praying for you. And let me tell you one of the most important things you'll ever hear. There's a freedom that can be found that no one can ever take from you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is so good. And uh, we rewound that and I filmed it, man, and I sent it to a few buddies. And, and uh, man, that is so wonderful because it's the truth. We have a freedom that can never be taken from us. We will be free forever because our God has made us free. In Him, we find freedom. And so we're in Romans chapter 7. Um, We've broken this chapter up into five messages, and if this is your first time here, or maybe you just have trouble keeping track of how many messages are in each chapter, this is the third message of this chapter. So two more uh, will come after this one. We'll finish this chapter, and then we'll be done with the book of Romans for 2022. We'll pick it back up in 2023. And so we've got a few things planned for the end of the year, Advent, and other things that will take up that time. So don't worry, we will get back to Romans, probably around February-ish, once we finish up this chapter. But in this chapter of Romans chapter 7, Paul is explaining our interaction with God's law. As you already know, uh, you may know this, you may not know this, there is much debate in this chapter uh, about the perspective that Paul is coming from when he's writing this. Uh, is he speaking as a lost man? Is he speaking as a saved man? Is he speaking for himself or is he speaking uh, more of like a federal head type way? Or is he speaking like for all of Israel? There's lots of debate on uh, how he's speaking, the perspective from which he's coming from. But let me quote from Douglas Moo, who is a commentator on Romans, who will help calibrate our minds as we approach this passage this morning. This is what Douglas Moo says. He says, as we approach this controversial paragraph, our text this morning, we must keep in mind that Paul's focus is still on the Mosaic law and its interaction with sinful people. In these verses, Paul shows us that the Mosaic law is impotent or of no value to rescue people from their sin. For the law informs us of our duties, but it does not give us the ability to fulfill those duties. Paul's essential teaching from the inability of the Mosaic law to rescue sinful people Form the spiritual from the spiritual bondage is the same whether that bondage is the condition of the unregenerate person who cannot be saved through the law or of that of the regenerate person who cannot be sanctified and ultimately delivered from the influence of sin through the law. Does that make sense? So no matter if you're a believer in here, you're not a believer, this is still applicable that the law is impotent of rescuing you. It's not what the law is for. And so that's going to help keep us out of the weeds in this passage. 
Uh, but now let's deal with something else that may be catching you uh, off guard. It's this word you see up here as our title. Um, probably a word that maybe you've never seen before. Um, concupiscence. Everybody say that with me. Concupiscence. Concupiscence. See, if you say it right the first time, you won't mess it up. I had a bunch of uh, dudes try to get me to mess it up even as this morning, and I'm trying to just keep saying it right. Concupiscence. Um, most of you probably never heard of this word. I hadn't until this week. In fact, as I was writing this message, uh, I was struggling uh, to get a title. I was kept being asked for a title. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I was struggling because I'm struggling to just put a title up there that, that what Paul is actually getting at in this text. And this is after I had written about 13 or 14 pages uh, on this text. And so I had done a lot of work, but I was just no, no title that was coming to mind fit. Uh, so I actually delivered this message on Thursday morning to about a dozen local pastors from around this area. And afterward, Carlton sent me a link to Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther article on this passage, on Romans 7, and it contained this word. And so I began doing research on this word. And would you know that this is precisely the word that has been used throughout much of church history to describe what Paul is talking about in this passage? So let me read to you from the Osberg Confession, uh, which is one of the most important documents of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, FYI, we're celebrating that this coming Sunday, so don't miss that. There's a plug. But the Osberg Confession, this is what it says. It defines concupiscence in its second article on original sin. Here's what it says. Our churches teach that since the fall of Adam, all who are naturally born are born with sin. That is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin called concupiscence. Concupiscence is a disease and original vice that is truly sin. It damns and brings forth eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to take from that. Concupiscence, a disease and original vice that is truly sin. So in today's message, I'm not going to be preaching topically on concupiscence, but rather I'll be preaching expositionally from verses 13 through 17, which as you will see, gives the framework for this idea, concupiscence. So let's get to it. In last week's text, Paul makes this statement in verse 9. Look, look down to verse 9. Go back up a little. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died, right? So it's important that we understand what he means by this phrase. And if you're reading that for the first time, you might think, hmm, okay. The reason it's important that we understand is because Paul builds on this idea in our passage. So what does he mean? Well, uh, if, you, if you were here for Carlton's message on this text, you'll remember that when talking about the first use of the law, he said that it's like a mirror that displays the holiness and righteousness of God. And he said that when we look into that mirror, we see ourselves to be all kinds of ugly. When we look into the magnificent beauty of God, we see that we are not beautiful as he is beautiful. 
When we look into his perfect justice and mercy and righteousness, we see that we are severely lacking. So when Paul says that he once was alive apart from the law, this is the idea he's getting at. Before the law came and revealed to us the holy character of God, we thought we were doing just fine. We thought we didn't have a problem. But you see, being oblivious to your problem doesn't mean that you don't have a problem. Amen? Some of you folks married are like, amen. Right? Let me tell you a story. When I was 20 years old, I was playing basketball with some local dudes around here. I was guarding a guy that was way better than I was. Most guys I played with were better than I was. But this guy was six foot six, about 220 pounds. So even for me, he was a big dude. All right? He played guard at JSU, so not only was he big, he was fast. Uh, but in this pickup game, I was guarding him, and he crossed in front of me. And when he crossed in front of me, I got really lucky and picked his pocket. All right? For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that just means I popped the ball out, and now it's free. All right? Excited and surprised that I did this, I thought, I'm going to get this ball. So I dove for this ball, uh, laid out on the court to secure this ball, and I don't know if he was diving backwards for the ball, I don't know if he was just dropping the people's elbow on me, I don't know, if he, I don't know what was happening, I'm not going to assume anything, but all I know was as I was laid out to get this ball, this big old boy's whole body fell on the back of my head, slamming my face into the hardwood, alright? So, after this happened... Wasn't that bad a pain, just to be honest, but I mean, it doesn't feel good to have 220 pounds fall on the back of your head, but it wasn't terrible pain. You understand? Like, like I, I knew something was off. I knew my face had took a hit to the floor, uh, but, but I immediately started reaching up and I could, it felt like my teeth had just been shifted. So I'm reaching up for my, I'm like, have, have my teeth been shifted? What's, what's going on, guys? And I'm standing up and kind of looking around and one of the other guys, that, uh, Ryan Chambliss, actually looked at me and he said, uh, oh, dude, you're, you're going to need stitches. And I said, stitches? What are you talking about? My teeth just feel shifted. So I reached up and my whole hand's covered in blood. I was like, oh, I may need to go look in a mirror. Um, and so I go, uh, leave the court and walk into the bathroom. And I looked in the mirror. And I'm 20 years old and I've seen all kinds of horrific movies and real grotesque stuff, right? Because that's what you do when you're a teenager. You look up weird stuff. But guys, I'm not joking with you. When I looked in that mirror, I saw the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. My eye was laid open. I think I got like 13 or 14 stitches. My teeth, my two front teeth were broken off. And my nose was on the side of my face. All right? Now that was incredibly grotesque because it was my face. <laughs> All right? I knew something was off when that happened. But when I looked in the mirror, I could not have conceived how bad it was. And that's why I tell you the story to say that People can tell you, just like Carlton did last week, that you're a sinner and that you fall short of the glory of God's holiness. And you kind of get it. But until you look for yourself into the mirror of God's law and see just how bad you are, you won't truly get it. 
You won't truly get the gravity of it. This is why Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What if I told you it was worse than that? Paul says sin came alive. The story that I told you gets at the point that sin was already there and we become aware of it. But Paul's point goes even further. Paul also states that the law incites the sin in us. The law stirs up our sin. You probably remember Carlton showing this idea through parenting over the last couple weeks. You tell Susie she can't have what she wants and now she wants it all the more, right? So you see, the law has no power to make our hearts better. In fact, the law makes the situation worse. This is Paul's point in Romans 7, 1 through 6, which is why he asked the question in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And we know how he answers that question. But here, here's the new question he poses in verse 13 that we'll be looking at this morning. Check it out, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. And we're going to pause right there and deal with that first because I feel like if I keep reading, you'll just get confused. So let's just deal with that. Paul's, Paul's shifting up a lot in this text. Paul's answer to the question, did that which is good, the law, bring death to me, is by no means Paul says it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. So here's your first point if you're taking notes this morning. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Paul makes this clear. The law is not the problem. Why? Because God's law is simply his character formalized, you could say. You could say that that, that the law is the structure of his character. Therefore, sin comes in and leads us to rebel against his character, against his person in every way. The first commandment says, you shall have no other God before me. Therefore, sin leads us to worship the created rather than the creator. The second commandment says, you shall not make idols. And sin leads us to try and worship God through Bible reading or church attendance or morality. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Therefore, sin leads us to lessen his name through thoughtless expressions like OMG. Fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Therefore, sin leads us to not set aside one day for rest and worship, but to take advantage of all seven days for our own pursuits. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. And you know what sin does? It shows us just how silly, antiquated, and ridiculous our parents' ideas are and leads us to disobey them. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And sin shows us how to murder and get away with it, either by throwing the weapon in the river or by deleting people from our thoughts and lives because we hate them. 
Seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And sin leads us to take an unrighteous interest in the beauty of another. The eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. Therefore, sin leads us to fudge numbers on our taxes and other places where it's socially appropriate. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And sin leads us to embellish the truth. The tenth commandment says, you shall not covet And sin leads us to be infatuated with what others have and discontent with what God has given us. Church, in all of these scenarios, what is bringing forth the transgression? Is it the thing I coveted or stole? Is it the person I slept with or murdered? Is it the rule itself? Answer, no. According to Paul, it's sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is producing death in me through what is good. God's law, God's character is good and holy. But sin has taken it, and verse 11 from last week says, it has seized an opportunity through the commandment. So let me, be try, let me try to be crystal clear with what I'm saying. Sin will always take whatever you give it and seize an opportunity through it to kill you. Whatever you give it. Always, every time. So parents, don't fool yourself about how dangerous it is out there in the world in a way that leads you to de-emphasize The sin that dwells in your baby, in your child, that will cause them to wild out in all kinds of ways. Do you understand? We often do that. We go, oh, I don't want little Johnny, little Susie to be, you know, tainted by what's out there. It's in them. It's in them. Focus more there. And I'm not saying overlook what's out there. There's some absolutely dangerous things out there. But the most dangerous thing for your child, for you personally, is the sin that dwells within you. So hear me closely. Sin is the problem. The mirror of God's law reveals our sin, but it also inflames and incites our sin as it gives us more opportunities to what? Rebel. More opportunities to produce death. And this is true of all things in the world. Sin in our hearts will try and seize all things in a way that will produce death. Let me go over a few. When you interact with others, when you interact with others, sin will seize an opportunity to produce death in you. When you interact with sports, sin will seize an opportunity. When you interact with science, sin will seize an opportunity. When you interact with family, sin seizes opportunity. When you interact with business, internet, entertainment, even agriculture, sin will seize opportunities to produce death in you. Sin's the problem. And sin will take everything, especially the good things that I just mentioned, and twist them and misuse them in a way that produces death. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Through what is good. But don't miss this next part. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, 
and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. I want you to focus in on that phrase, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Let's dig in there. Did you know that as sinful people, we have an innate way of normalizing sin? It's natural for us to normalize sin, right? I mean, just think with me. More than half of Americans have found in their way, in their mind, a way to normalize the killing of babies in the womb. Yeah, I think most of us in this room, as I hear gasp, would hate that. Hopefully all of us see that as wrong and in sin. It baffles us. But often I think we feel like they're so dumb. They're so dumb. I mean, can't they just see? But here's what we got to remember, church, that it's only because of God's grace to us that we're able to see clearly on that issue. It's only because of God's grace to you that you're able to see clearly on that issue because there are definitely other issues in your own life that you're blind to. Definitely. Sin in our own lives has taught us to normalize and learn to live with certain sinful things that we just think, well, it's the way things are supposed to be. But when we press into the character of God, the spirit of the law, sin is shown to be sin. It's shown to be sin. Very clearly it is. But I fear that it's in these moments, you and I, as the morally right people of our day, want to sneak out from under the weight of this burden by trying to ignore or justify the conviction that we feel about whatever it is. Here's my warning to you from the text. Remember that God's law doesn't just expose your sin, but it also incites or inflames your sin. Now that you've seen it, like a bug drawn towards light, you cannot let it go. You've got more of an inclination and more of a passion to sin than you ever have. Now it's taken off. Now it's growing. And that's precisely why Paul says the commandment came. So that through it, sin might become what? Sinful beyond all measure. Clearly put, clearly put. Let me, let me try to be super clear. When God's law reveals sin and you don't put it to death and you don't agree with God, that's repentance, agreeing with God about that, it will grow and grow out of control and beyond all measure. You know why you hear about great men of the faith falling so hard? Because they didn't deal with the little and seemingly insignificant sin in their life. Therefore, it grew up and became sinful beyond all measure. 
God's law is not the problem. God's world is not the problem. Technology is not the problem. Education, entertainment, and pleasure are not the problem. Church, sin is the problem. Sin's the problem. And now here's your second point, because I think you got the first one. Sin is not merely an action. Sin is not merely an action. As the Augsburg Confession puts so well, sin is a disease that all of humanity has been stricken with. This is what the scriptures mean when David writes in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I don't want you to get confused. When you disobey God's law, when we disobey God's law, we are sinning. But the reason that we're sinning is because we have the disease known as sin. You could say it this way. Sin comes forth from sin. Or the way Jesus said it was like this. Do you not see that whatever goes into a man or into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the where? And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus, during his ministry, set the record straight that sin is not merely an action. Just think logically with me. When you have the flu, does your workplace or school tell you, hey, come on to work, come on to school, Just don't bring that flu with you. Leave it at home. You you can't bring it in here. I mean, seriously, through the pandemic, you never got one email that said, if you have COVID, please leave it behind when you show up for tomorrow. Leave it behind. Okay. Wish we could have done that before 2020 happened, right? Just leave it behind. No, if I'm infected with it, what does that mean? If I come... It's coming with me. Church, this is the same idea of sin and precisely what Paul is saying in verse 14. Look at it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I what? Hate. Sin is not merely an action. It's a disease. Why is Paul doing the things that he hates? Because he's of the flesh. Why does he not understand his actions? Because he has a disease. A disease that he's been born with. A disease that he's been born with. Now why does this matter? Why are we placing such emphasis on this? Why does Paul make this point and feel like it's important for us to know? Well, here's the reason. This is important. If we think that sin is merely an action, then we will fall into thinking that merely not sinning is the goal. And if merely not sinning is the goal, well, that's an attainable goal, right? And church, this ideology will lead us into all kinds of weird and cult-like behaviors. Casey and I just finished uh, watching this show on Apple TV Plus called um, C, S-E-E. 
And the, the show is a post-apocalyptic show. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic show. Uh, he taught me that Wednesday. Um, and uh, and it's, so, so it's, it's in the future, but it's not like the future you would think because it's post-apocalyptic, right? It's, it's all like medieval and stuff. And, uh, and, and here's, here's the idea. Everybody's living very primitively, um, but most everybody in the world at this point is blind. Every, the whole world's blind, all right? And, and it's a good thing to be blind. In fact, if you're born with sight, you're known as a witch. And the queen has witch finders that will come out and kill anyone born with sight because they're a witch. And here's where they got this idea from. You see, their ancestors, us, we used our sight for all kinds of terrible things, awful inventions like nuclear warfare and evil entrapments and terrible technology. And you see, it's without sight that we are living the way that we're supposed to live because sight's bad. But here's the problem. This show is an incredibly violent show. And you think, what? It should be the promised land, right? Well, it should be. But it's not. In fact, these blind people have learned to war against each other in ways that are absolutely fascinating. I mean, you wonder, how can blind people war against each other? Oh, they can. All the other senses are turned up. And, and now I got you interested. Jason Momoa stars in this thing, which I think, I, I just see John Mayfield when I look at J Jason Momoa, but um, he's got the same face. Um, but what he, what he does is he, he tries all these crazy things. He taps on stuff. Some dude will run over there and God, got him, right? And like, so, so in fact, you, you could actually say that these people have become more violent with their lack of sight. You see, you see the deal here? Here's my point. Cutting out our eyes will not rid us of sin. Cutting off our hands will not rid us of sin. Staying away from tempting situations will not rid you from sin. Hanging out with sinners, not hanging out with sinners, will not rid you of sin. And church, while it might be wise for us at different points in our life to employ these kind of proximity-based uh, strategies, they are of no value in curing your heart. You hear me? It might be wise for you to stay away from that tempting situation, but understand that your proximity from it makes you no less evil. You still got to deal with what's within because sin is not merely an action. Therefore, merely changing our behavior is about as productive as rearranging ugly furniture. Seriously, it's still really ugly. But now at least you may have it set up in a way that makes sense. I'm not trying to be funny with that analogy because the truth of the matter is this is sad. That much of us feel better about ugly furniture being arranged in a culturally appropriate way. A way that leads people to think of you as hardworking or moral. Are you hearing what I'm saying? 
Many of us are fine with getting at our actions or our children's actions and making them culturally acceptable or morally good. But church, this could very well make your state worse than it was. That's what Jesus says to the, to the Jews. He says, you go land and sea to create one proselyte and you make them twice the child of hell as you are. With all of your stuff. Make them all kinds of pretty. These whitewashed tombs. You're not dealing with the issue. And if this truth is sinking in today, then it should cause you to feel very undone. To feel very hopeless about all you're doing to rid yourself of sin. You can't no more rid yourself of sin than you can rid yourself of the flu. Sure, you can take a hot shower, brush your teeth, put on makeup, take some cough suppressant, and nasal decongestant. But any of these, all that any of these things do is deal with the symptoms and not the problem. Sin is not merely an action. And therefore, knowing God's law is not enough. It's not enough. But it is good to know God's law. Because God's law or God's character is good and holy. But we must go further. We must go further. What is better than knowing God's law? What's better than knowing God's law? Is knowing his person. Knowing his person. Corey, why are you bifurcating those two? Because we... We may know the character of our God. We may know all he said, and we may know his law, but we don't know him. You see, too often we're blind to sin, seizing an opportunity through God's law, which gives us a desire to obey his law. But this obedience, listen to me, this obedience is just an attempt to be like God, exuding his magnificent character Without him. You hear that? Apart from him. Oh yeah. Yeah. You want to be like God without God. We want to be righteous rather than beholding the righteous one. And this is the epitome of sin. The Jewish people claim to love Yahweh. To give their entire lives to obeying Yahweh. They taught his precepts with diligence and stood ready and zealous to rebuke. And even worse to those who did not obey and disagreed. But when Yahweh took on flesh and dwelt among them. You know what they did? They hated him. They rejected him. They scorned him. You see, the sin that they were born with seized the law of God and produced death in them. It led them to rejecting the perfect son, the second person of the Trinity, the crown jewel of heaven. And this is precisely, precisely what Jesus' ministry was about. It was about trying to show people that their condition was far worse than they can imagine. But through him, through God, through Christ, through enjoining themselves to him, through a marriage union with him, they can be saved from the death that sin is producing in them. They can be saved from the death that sin is producing in them. Church, when you're born again, you were born 
you are born into an eternal spiritual life. That's what you're born into. You're a new man, a new woman. But this disease that you were born with in your flesh still resides in your flesh. It hasn't been eradicated. This is Paul's struggle in verse 15 when he says this. Look, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I what? Hate. You see, he's a new man, but all the while, he's very aware, keenly aware, that he still acts in a way that is contrary to the character of God. And if we're honest this morning, this is our Christian experience, right? Why do I do the things that I hate? Because those things still remain in my flesh. Still, sin still remains in this body. But now listen to his words in verse 16 and 17. Look at these. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's a radical statement. And this is your third point today if you're taking notes. Very simple. Not I, but sin. Not I, but sin. Church, this is a massive distinction that we must make as people who have been changed, transformed, given a new heart by believing in Jesus. When you sin, listen to me, when you sin, it's not you who are sinning, but the sin that dwells in you. I know many of you are going... That sounds odd, Corey. I don't know if I'm there. Well, it may sound odd to you because it seems that Paul is saying something unlikely and dangerous. You see, we never teach anyone to pass the buck when it comes to taking responsibility for their sin, right? But this is not what Paul means. John Calvin, listen to John Calvin on this text. He says, Paul's not excusing himself as though he is blameless, but rather... It is a declaration by which he shows how very far he dissented from his own flesh in his spiritual feeling. Did you hear that? Paul sees them as separate. Separate. I thought you said they're together. Separate is how we must see them. If we're going to make any headway into true sanctification, true holiness, we must not regard anyone according to the what? Flesh. That's not who they truly are. Every believer's identity is righteous and holy, child of God. In fact, we were talking about this this past week, and we were talking about how when you interact with another person who is a believer, you're interacting with Christ. Now think about all the ugly things you think about when people. Think about all the boxes you got people in. I'll tell you what that did to me. Made me go, whoa, whoa, whoa is me. Is this Christ? Is this body? I'm making these presuppositions about Christ. I'm putting these labels on Christ. I'm disrespecting Christ. I'm avoiding Christ. 
every believer's identity is righteous and holy. Therefore, when we act in a way that is not in accordance with God's law, we must see it as sin that still dwells in us. Sin that dwells in us. Tell me this. Why is no one ashamed to go and get treatment for cancer? Have you ever heard of that? Someone ashamed to go and be treated for a disease that they have? If you have heard of that, it's, it's rare, and it's probably more having to do with them denying that they have that disease than anything. But the reason that's not the way that people respond uh, when, they, when, they, when they're stricken with a disease is because they know they need treatment. And what happens when we find out someone has cancer and they're going to get treatment? What, is, what does the community do? They bring it in. They love these people. They sympathize with these people. They're patient with them. They sacrifice time and help them go get treatment. They lose sleep. They cry for them. They pray for them as this person is suffering with this disease. But for some reason, as the church, we treat sin as if it's merely a choice. Brother, you need to quit sinning. Get your act together. What's wrong with you, man? Again, do not hear me say that we are not responsible for our sin. That's ridiculous. We are responsible. But you must distinguish between the sinner and the saint. You must distinguish here. You used to be a sinner, but you are now a saint. Sure, you know nothing about being a saint, which is why God has given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his church. He's given you his word. And he's given you the wonderful gift of prayer so that your character might grow into the great man of God, the great woman of God, the wonderful child of God that he recreated you to be. But I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. I know your head's spinning right now. When you were born, you were born with a disease of sin. When you were reborn through believing in Jesus, you were made a holy new man or woman. But this man or woman is still encased in this flesh. And we want to put it off, don't we? You're going, to hear, you're going to hear Paul here in a second go, who will deliver me from this body of death? Don't you want to be free? We want to be free. We long to be with God. We long to leave this flesh behind. But this disease of sin has attached itself to every fiber, every strand of your DNA. All your members have been affected. And that's why God calls you to himself. He calls you to himself as the author and perfecter of your faith to be healed. <laughs> what must happen if the disease of sin is going to be separated from every strand of DNA you have? What must happen? A miracle must happen. An absolute miracle must happen. If that doesn't sound impossible to you, if that doesn't sound overwhelming, then I fear you might be missing it. Because as long as holiness and sanctification sounds like something you can try your hand at by yourself, you will make no progress. 
None. But when you see, like Paul does, that you need an absolute miracle from heaven, then you are on the right track. You're on the right track. But here's what I would call you to. I would call you to remember the stories in the scriptures about people, about the people who received miracles from God. You know who those people were? They were people crying out, Son of David! Son of David! They were people climbing up trees to get a glimpse of him. They were people tearing apart roofs to drop their friends down to him. They were people reaching out and grabbing him. They were people traveling miles and miles. They were people who were willing to leave their friends, their careers, and their livelihoods, their futures, in order to be with him. That's who the people were. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I guess, I mean, I'll be changed when the Lord wants me to be changed, then I want you to know that sin has seized an opportunity through theology to produce death in you. Run to Jesus today. He's your only hope. Put whatever is keeping you away and seek his face. Reach out to a brother or sister if you feel incapable and say, will will you take me to Jesus? Will you carry me to Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day? Will, will Will you take me to him for the next year? Will you hold my hand? I want to be near him so that I can be healed. I can't do this on my own. I can't rip the very fibers of sin from the fibers of my DNA. I have no hope in this. But there's hope in Jesus. Only in Jesus will you be healed from concupiscence. Concupiscence. The disease of sin. Only in Jesus will you be healed from this. I want to end today by reading you some powerful words that Paul writes in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I pray these words will be a strong first shot against your sin, your disease of sin today. Listen to these powerful words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Amen. May it be so, church. Let's pray.